It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's today's special guest, Philip Hartman. Amen. Okay, so we're going to dive into Psalm 122 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 122. There's something about a good physical Bible that I like. You know, it's like, yeah, you got the apps on your phones and all that sort of stuff, but just, I, so if you've got your Bibles, turn there. If not, you don't have to feel bad. That's okay. Uh, but Psalm, uh, some of you are like, oh man, I don't have my, my physical Bible this morning. Yeah, that's right. Then I comment on it. That's okay. <laughs> don't feel bad about it. Uh, it's, it's, that's right. So, 122, uh, we've been talking about these songs of ascents, and, and we know that they're called the songs of ascents. Have you guys ever noticed in your Bibles that sometimes there's like headings on, on different, sometimes they even break up the chapters, so like, you know, verses 1 through 10 will be on from front, and then you'll have verses 11 through 22 is on something else, and you'll have headings in there. Those headings are typically not in, in, the, bi- in the actual biblical text. Does that make sense? Oftentimes those are man-made or, or inserted in. Do you guys have any Bibles where maybe at the beginning of the chapters or at the top of your page it sort of says what it's about? Typically those descriptions are not actually part of the, the biblical or those are not part of a biblical text. Those are man-made descriptions. So you want to make sure that you don't read those into the text. Have you guys ever noticed that? that? That they put a heading in there and it says this is what it's about. And then you sort of look at it through a lens of something that isn't even in there in terms of that wasn't part of the original text. Just like chapters we're not part of the original text. So, so the way that it's broken up, for example, in the epistles, um, now in the Psalms would be different, but in terms of the epistles and, and, and other portions of the scriptures, for example, in the, the Torah, the first five books, uh, or the Pentateuch, sorry, that you would have these breakings, and we've added into verses and chapters. Well, those weren't there, right? And so it's great to be able to, to read them. It's, it's terrible when you see, for example, in Romans chapter 8, when, when the chapter starts with therefore, and you think, why is a chapter starting with therefore, right? So you've got to go back to chapter 7 and say, okay, we've got to read this whole thing in context and, and, and not just this one little chapter because we miss context. So we know, though, that these are called the Psalm of Ascents. That's a, all that was bonus, okay? We, we know they're called the Psalm of Ascents because that's actually what's in the biblical text. That wasn't inserted by man. It's not a title that we've given to it. In the actual biblical text of the Psalms, they start out, a psalm of ascent, um, or a song of ascent, and then this particular one says, of David. So there's four different songs of ascent that are written by David. Uh, psalm 122, 124, 131, and 133. Um, Solomon also wrote one of them, and I, I, I forget, I, I think most of the rest of them, we don't know exactly who wrote them. Um, but this one, in Psalm 122, says, a song of ascent of David. So we know that David wrote it. Now, this idea of a song of a sense, we're not actually positive what it means. Okay, so, so amongst sort of the, the, the different scholars out there, they would generally agree that most likely these are the songs that were sung as they were going up to Jerusalem on their way to the feasts of the Lord at different times of the year. Okay, so that's most likely, it's probably the most uh, likely interpretation, but we really don't know exactly what a song of a sense mean, but most scholars would agree that's probably the most likely thing, is that they were singing these songs as they were going up to Jerusalem. This song in particular that we're going to look at today in Psalm 122, is, it makes a lot of sense within that context as well uh, when we get into this 
passage. But let's just read the psalm, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So this is a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of a house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And so really, this whole psalm is wrapped up around Jerusalem. And then we're going to get into this a bit later, but not just around Jerusalem, but you see this this emphasis here of it's not just being within Jerusalem, but it's what's held within Jerusalem, which is the house of the Lord. This is all wrapped up around that central place in this, this place of Jerusalem known as the, the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, and, and the holy of holies is the central place within that temple where the, the spirit of the Lord dwelt during this time. Okay, and, but, but this psalm is all about Jerusalem, so I want to give you a little bit of background on Jerusalem, because I think it's going to help you understand a little bit about Jerusalem, and, and I think there's some really unique things that we're going to look at this morning. So, turn to Genesis chapter 14, and, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to pick up, you guys remember that, that you have this battle between the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and these other kings get together, and there's this battle, and part of what happens is Lot and his family are captured by them, okay? And so that's what we're going we're gonna to pick up here is uh, we're, we're going to pick up where Lot has been captured. So this is, uh, again, Genesis 14, we'll start in verse 13. And there came one that escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and a brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother, Lot, was, oh, sorry, his brother, which is speaking of Lot and his family, was taken captive. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women with him, all, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Shader Lamor, of the king's that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. Mark that. We're going to come back to the valley of Sheva. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies and thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abram gave to, to Melchizedek tithes. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods of thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, Listen to what he says. I love this. I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord. Okay, now, now this idea of lifting up your hands unto the Lord is the idea of, of swearing. Okay? And in fact, we still do that today, don't we? Right? That you lift your hand up. I um, do hereby when, and whatever is said, right? You see this in courts and so on. So this idea of lifting up the hand of the Lord, he says, I've, I've sworn to the Lord. I've lifted up my hand. I've sworn to the Lord. 
And what did he, he, what did he swear to the Lord? The Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Isn't that interesting? So here we have Abram's gone out, and, and he's won this great battle. I mean, it's really a military feat what he's done. And, and, and the king of Sodom comes out to him and is really grateful because he's rescued them. He's rescued Lot. He's rescued his family. And he says, well, I'll take the people back, but, but, but you keep all the stuff. And, and Abram says, listen, I've lifted my hand in heaven. I'm not going to take even a thread from a shoe latchet. Meaning the smallest, I'm not going to take a paper clip from you. Lest you can say that I have made Abram rich. Lest, lest anybody gets the glory but God. Lest, lest anyone should, should receive that but God. I, I will not take anything from you. Now, this takes place in the valley of Sheva, which is where, this is where the king of Sodom comes and meets with Abram. And, and we don't know exactly which valley this valley is. It's this valley right in the area of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is actually the first mention of this area that we see in the scriptures. Right here, that, that Abram has this interaction with Sodom and says, I, I'm going to refuse what you're going to give me. He, he could have said, I'm, I made Abram rich. And Abram says, no, I'm not going to take that. I've sworn to the Lord, I will take nothing from you, lest you boast that you've made me rich. But then also there, we have in this valley of Sheva, which is this area of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, okay, and, and we're not going to get into Melchizedek this morning, but most would say that, that, that the king of Salem, that Salem was an early name for Jerusalem. Can you guys hear it in there, right? Salem meaning peace, shalom, right, is peace, and so Salem meaning peace, and, and he's translated the king of righteousness, is what it says in Hebrews chapter 7, that, that Melchizedek is translated the king of Salem, meaning king of righteousness or king of peace, and and. So some would say, or most would say, that that is actually Jerusalem that he was king of in a very early, early form right there. So you have, he's in this valley of Sheva, which is right there in that Jerusalem area, and then the king of Salem comes out and meets Abram. And these are these experiences that he's having in this geographical location of Jerusalem. Chapter 15, so this is the next thing that happens um, right after that. It says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came into Abram in a vision. After these things, meaning what? Well, we just had him refusing what the king of Sodom wanted to give to him and giving a tithe to um, Melchizedek and, and being blessed by Melchizedek all in this area of Jerusalem. So after this, a vision comes to him and says, Fear not, Abraham or Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. See what just happened here? Abram refused to take the spoils of the world and the things that the king of Sodom had to give to him. And then the Lord comes to him right after this and says, do not be afraid. I am thy shield and I am thy exceeding great reward. Are we willing to give up what the world has to offer us so that we might experience that, that, that he himself is our exceeding great reward? The Lord says, I am, I am your exceeding great reward. And then Abraham says, or Abram says, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast, been given, uh, thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came in him, saying, 
This shall not be mine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward the heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said to him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So he's in this valley of Sheva. The king of Salem comes to him. The king of Sodom comes to him. And then the Lord appears to him and, and says, Do not be afraid. I am thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham goes, But I don't have any children. How is this going to work? And, and, and he says, See the stars of heaven. And he promises that out of his own bowels would come forth an heir which, of course, we know is the one that takes on this promises that, that God has given to Abram. Now, I want to go a few chapters later. Seven chapters later, we have, you know, we, we have the whole drama of, of Ishmael is born, right? So, so Abram's going, well, God told me that he's going to come out of my bowels, so I'm going to try and do this in my own strength, right? We do that sometimes, don't we? We get God's vision for our life, and then we try and produce it in our own strength. And so here he, he goes into Hagar and has Ishmael, and God says, I'm not going to bless Ishmael. In fact, uh, when God, in, in Genesis chapter 22, which we're just about to read, when he refers to Isaac, he refers to him as his only son. In God's view, Isaac is the only legitimate son that has come out of Abraham. Ishmael is illegitimate fruit. And so now, now Isaac's been born. And in Genesis chapter 22, we have this great test. So here's what happens. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. This is chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. He says, take thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Ishmael's illegitimate. Take your only son, Isaac, and offer him there in the land of Moriah. Now, you guys know what Mount Moriah is, right? Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. So later on, the temple is actually going to be built on this spot uh, uh, or, or this general area of Mount Moriah. And you know what Mount Moriah overlooks? Jerusalem. In terms of this is the area of Jerusalem. So literally, you, you recognize that, that when, when Abraham is offering up his son, you know where God sent him? He would be looking upon this same valley where God promised to him that he would have a son and that that son would, would multiply it through him to bless the whole earth and, and, and like the stars and so on. So we'll... we'll uh, Pick back up in verse, for some reason, verse 3 is missing. We'll pick back up in verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Abide you here if he asks, and I with the lad, and I am a lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. He considered this worship. And Abraham took the wood of a burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took a fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together, and they came to a place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. Can you imagine? He's doing this literally where, right near the valley where God has promised that through this son, he, he would spread forth like, like multitudes. 
And, and what it talks about in the New Testament is that Abraham believed God so much that, that he believed in a figurative sense that God could raise back Isaac from the dead. In other words, he believed, Lord, if you're telling me to kill him, you can raise him back from the dead because this is what you've promised. And so he, he takes a knife to slay his son, and, and, and for the sake of time, we'll, we'll skip of a rest, but we know what happens is that, that, of course, there's a ram in the thicket, and you have this great place of provision, which then eventually becomes this place later on down the road where the temple is built. So I want to skip forward a little ways. We have, of course, Abraham, Isaac, there's a, a ram in his place, and this great picture of the cross and, and the Lord Jesus. And then he has a son, or a couple of sons, right? You have Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob becomes Israel, and they go into Egypt, and then they come out of Egypt, and, and they're in Egypt. They've been wandering around for a long time in the desert, being disobedient. They've received God's law. They've rebelled against God's law. They've complained against God when God's provided for them, and, and so on and so on. And Deuteronomy now is the last sort of commission of Moses to the people, because remember, Moses doesn't go into the promised land. Moses just, he looks, but he doesn't get to go in. So this is his commission of how they're to live when they get into the promised land. Okay, so all these later, years later, the people of God are finally returning to this place that God has promised to them, where Abraham was when, when he met with the king of Sodom, when he met with the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and when he offered up Isaac. They're returning to this place all of these years later. And God is giving instructions through Moses of how they are to behavior. And in Deuteronomy 12, he introduces this idea that then is replete throughout the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. And, and the idea is this place that the Lord your God will choose. Okay, listen to this. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's start in verse 5. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek. Okay, so let's talk about this place for a second. First, this is a place that the Lord chooses, right? This isn't a place that man decides upon, but God will choose a place, right? A, a singular place. He didn't say multiple different places. He didn't say many different places. God would choose a singular place of his own choosing, and, and it would be a place amongst the tribes. And, and he says a couple of things. His name is there. He's placed his name there, and his dwelling or his habitation is there. So he's chosen the place. It's a singular place where he places his name, and he dwells there. Thither shalt thou come. Isn't that interesting? You know, we live in a generation today where we want the Lord to come to us on our terms. We want the Lord to do what we want on our terms. And yet, that's not the way it works. He says, I choose a place where I place my name, and you come there. He says, Viver shalt thou come. This is a command. And thither you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and your heave offerings of your hand and your vows and your freewill offerings and your firstlings of your herds and your flocks. There you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand unto and you and your householdings wherein the Lord thy God has blessed thee. He says, you don't just bring your, your offerings anywhere, right? But don't we like to think like that? Lord, I'm doing some good things. He says, you're going to bring them here to this specific place. But when you go over the Jordan, right? So this is Moses. They're on one side of the Jordan. He says, when you go over the Jordan into the land and dwell in the land which the Lord your God gives you inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then 
there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and heave offering of your hand and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. Now one of the things you see is that the Lord chooses it after they've subdued their enemies and, and they're at rest in the land. And you should rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maidservants of the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. It's not an option. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there shalt thou offer burnt offerings, and there shalt thou do all that I command you. And so this is the first time where we really see this idea, and then he begins to, to clarify all throughout the book of Deuteronomy that he's always going back to this place that the Lord chooses. So it's, it's this place that the Lord chooses later on, this singular place to seek after him. You know what's interesting? If you search the scriptures, you, you, you do see some interesting things that God blesses his house in Jerusalem, and, and it, it becomes obvious that Jerusalem is the place. Right? In, in other words, any, anybody who's a student of the scriptures, if you just read through the Old Testament, it becomes really obvious that, that, that Jerusalem is a place, for example, Jerusalem, and then we know that the temple is built there by Solomon, David's son, and, 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 and in that temple, you remember when they, when they build it, God comes and dwells there. He places his name there. He comes and dwells there. And so we see sort of this fulfillment of it, but you know what's really interesting? We have no record in the scriptures of God choosing the place. There's, there's no record in the scriptures. It's, it's not like later on God says, okay, so Jerusalem is the place. He doesn't say it. it, it it's never there. So you see, God says over and over, I'm going to choose a place. But we have no record of that place ever being chosen. Until we get into the New Testament. Which we're going to get into. Isn't that interesting? So here you have this place, and so Jerusalem is what I'm going to call, no, actually pun intended, a placeholder. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was funny, play on words. <laughs> Get it? It's a placeholder uh, for the place that God chooses. It's a placeholder. That, that God never said Jerusalem's the place. That's the place where from here on out you're going to seek after God. It sort of becomes obvious that it's a placeholder. That it is the place in the Old Testament, right? You see that that is the temple. That they're not supposed to have temples other places. It's there in Jerusalem. And, and yet, God never clarifies that as the place. That's because Jerusalem is just a placeholder for the place that would come. For the place that would be revealed. The place where our lives and our devotion and our love and our worship is all to be aimed in that one singular place. Wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is that place. He is the singular place that the Lord has chosen. He is the singular sacrifice that the Lord has chosen. He is the singular one where we bring our devotion and we come to him and he saves us and rescues us. And, and we see these references in the New Testament where we see that he is, right, because the place is Jerusalem, but then within the place it's, it's obviously not just Jerusalem, it's the temple, right? And he says, tear down the temple and in three days I will rebuild it, but he talk about himself. That he is the one. He is the one who is the full expression of God. And he is the one that we come to in worship and devotion to God. He is the singular place that God has chosen 
where we bring our worship. Now, a couple of interesting things about Jerusalem. It was also called Jebus back in the day. So sometimes you'll read in the scriptures about Jebus. Uh, now, Jerusalem means Jeru Salem, and it's this idea of, of a teaching of peace or a place of peace. Okay, so this idea of, of, of shalom was a big deal. But then it was also called Jebus at times, and Jebus actually means threshing floor. It's, isn't that interesting? And, and part of a reason later, well, one of the things that we see later on that's interesting is the, the threshing floor was actually the foundation that was used for the temple. So the plot of land that, that is bought by David for the temple is actually built on a threshing floor. Now let me tell you what a threshing floor is. A threshing fl- floor is literally, they, they would sort of have like a, a hard rock or, or composite type floor, and they would bring all their wheat or all their different grains to it, and they would have these, they would blow like big fans, um, but not big electric diesel fans or something like that, but, but big fans, they would blow on it, and they would beat the tar out of, say, the wheat, okay? And what would happen is the, the, the outside or the husk of that grain would fall off, and it would blow away from the fan, and what would remain is the kernel or the grain. It was the idea of the separation of the chaff from the kernel, of that which is useless and that which is not helpful or not edible from that which was useful for the, for the, the purposes of God, that which would actually be useful for grain. And literally the temple of God is built on a threshing floor. And, and even, even Jesus makes reference to this when he talks about and, and when he sees John the Baptist, and he talks about that the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit with fire, and he talks about, uh, how does he say it? I forget, but he, he talks about threshing instruments being in his hand, ready to, to thrash his wheat. And isn't that an expression of what the Lord Jesus did? I mean, you, you could say the circumcision of the heart, which is the removal of the flesh, and, and, and the, the threshing floor is what? It's the cleansing of the flesh or the removal of the flesh of that which hinders and stands in the way of God's purposes that, that we might be pure wheat that are useful to God. And that's literally the name of Jerusalem, and that's what the temple of God is built on is a threshing floor. Uh, they also call it the city of David, and the reason why they call it the city of David, I'll read it to you in First Chronicles. It says, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, Thou shalt not come up hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle. Therefore, they called it the city of David. And, and so that's why, why we end up with that name. But this place of, of Jerusalem, it's a place about sacrifice. It's a place about the provision of a lamb. It's a place about worship and devotion. It's a place about David, the beloved king, the beloved judge of his people. It's about a threshing place, and it's a place about peace. It's a place about the dwelling place of God. It's all about Jesus. And it's the church, right? That's what the church is supposed to be about. Is this, this wonderful picture of the church is this picture of those who are all about the sacrifice, those who are all about the king, those who are all about the worship and devotion to him. And so let's go back to Psalm 122. Man, time flies. It's already 30 minutes and we haven't even talked about our passage yet hardly. So now that you know about Jerusalem, this, this passage is all about Jerusalem. So he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. 
I was glad when he said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Now, the, the next verse is, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So here David is, and, and their feet are within the gates of Jerusalem. Okay, they're amongst the people of God. They're here in, in the city of Jerusalem. And yet, it, that's not enough. It, it's not enough just to be in the city of Jerusalem or to be around the people of God. But, but his heart is glad. He's excited. He's eager when they say, hey, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, we see here an expression of corporate worship right? That, that, that certainly in the believer's life there is to be a private worship, but here we see this expression of, of corporate worship. It's not go into the house of the Lord, but let us go into the house of the Lord. This invitation. And you see this idea of as brothers and sisters, as the church of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm going to talk mainly today about this idea of, of Jerusalem being a place that in the midst of them is the habitation of God. That is us as the church, right? And, and the place that's all about the king and the sacrifice and the righteousness of our God. And so David's delight was in the house of the Lord. He was glad to seek after the Lord. That he wasn't content to just dwell among people that were seeking after the Lord, but he wanted to go himself up into the house of the Lord to seek after the Lord and to pursue after him. And, and you know, something you see here is God uses brothers and sisters to call us up into pursuit of the Lord. Because here it's not just, it's not just I'm going to go into the house of the Lord. It's not you're going to go into the house of the Lord, but let us go up into the house of the Lord together. Let us pursue the Lord together. And so here, think about this. Here King David gladly receives the exhortation of another. He's the king, right? But he gladly receives the invitation of another to seek after the Lord. Have you guys ever... Have you guys ever been with maybe a group of friends? And, or maybe, I don't know, it could be family or some situation. And somebody says, guys, I'm just really burdened. I think we should pray. And you're sort of like, well, this isn't really time for that. Should it ever be the state of our soul? Where it's, yeah, I feel a little awkward. That's a, that, that obviously shows a lack of sobriety, right? But, but we must not be sharp. We must not be ready. It must not be prepared. I want to be a place where I'm always ready to say, yeah, let's pray. Amen. And, and that's where we see David here. But somebody says, let us go up into the house of the Lord. And he says, I was glad when I heard that. Let's do it. Yeah, let's seek after the Lord. Uh, again, they've been standing within the gates, which we see in verse 2. He says, our feet have been standing within your gates. But we see here a purposeful corporate expression of, of not just hanging out in Jerusalem, but going up to the house of the Lord to seek the Lord. And in the next verse, in, in verse 3, it says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Now, now there would be some uh, geographical reasons why they might save us, right? We know it's surrounded by hills, and, it, and it's quite tight in terms of, of it can't expand very much because of some of those hills. And, and so that is one reason why people would say geographically some of this means. But what a picture of a body of Christ. You know what? The same word compact is actually used about the body of Christ. Let, let me give it to you. Um, it's talking about that, that God gives different apostles and prophets, evangelists, and so on, different members of a body to, to edify one another. And he says, for the work of a ministry, for the edifying of a body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. It's an interesting same term that he uses for Jerusalem. The body is compacted. In other words, it's, it fits together by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, making increase of a body under the edifying of itself in love. And if you think about it, just a physical body in terms of how our joints work together and, and our muscles work together and our tendons and so on, that, that all of our body is working together. It's been fitly compacted together. Why? In order to reveal that which is inside of it. Right? In other words, the purpose of my body is to reveal what I desire to express. Wouldn't it be weird if my thumb got its own mind and was like, I'm going to distract from what you want to express. My thumb's like over here sort of like wiggling as I'm trying to talk to you guys and it's just like, can you, can you imagine, right? How often are we that way in the body? Where, where as opposed to a thumb saying, hey, I, I, might, I may only be a thumb, but, but I've been compacted together with the rest of the body of Christ to reveal that which is dwelling inside of us. That, that we are the body of Christ to reveal Christ, that which is in, inhabiting us. That we are like a building, Paul says, that is fitly framed together, compacted together, all built up to showcase the glory of God. And when the body of Christ is functioning in obedience to the head, which is, is not the pastor, is, is our chief pastor, Jesus Christ. When we're all functioning in obedience with the head, right? And we're all in our different places. Maybe some are pastors and some are evangelists and so on. That we're coordinating by the head, by his spirit, and revealing what he wants to reveal in this world. Just like my body is revealing what is inside, so the body of Christ is revealing the one who indwells us. Isn't that profound? And yet this happens when we are compacted together, just, just like the city of Jerusalem was. So the next verse continues in the same sort of theme, but it says this. It says, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, um, or, or by the commandment is one of the things it says to Israel, to give thanks to the name of of the Lord. And so it, it's talking about Jerusalem, which is this place where, where the people are gathering. And why? Well, the purpose is to give thanks to the name of the Lord. But isn't it interesting? I was thinking about this. The fact that it says tribes in plural is a miracle. Because do you know what tribes do in the world? They fight, right? <laughs> and, and you've got these, uh, this tribe versus that tribe. And, and remember, at this time, all 12 tribes are, are actually in unity, um, as opposed to later on when they sort of broke up into their two different groups and then were scattered abroad. But, but this is a picture of a body of Christ, uh, that, that different people from, from different places and different backgrounds and different, so on, that, that we've been made one in Jesus Christ to give thanks and glory unto his name. You know, in the church... There's so much debating and, and bickering and, and backbiting and fighting and gossiping and so on today. But, but here it talks about these different tribes from, from different backgrounds, different histories, coming together to give thanks to the name of the Lord. They're coming together in obedience to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And, and you know, Thanksgiving replaces all those things. If you look at the way that we're supposed to use our tongues, that, that the Bible oftentimes contrasts that using your tongue in an evil way with giving thanks. And, and, and we see this with Paul, for example, where he contrasts giving thanks as the positive with all sorts of gossiping and using our tongues to tear down and using our tongues to destroy and to hurt and to harm and to, and to, to speak ill of those and, and so on. 
but, but rather to give thanks, is what he says. It goes on in, in verse 5 and says, For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And this idea of the house of David, of course, we know that our Lord came of the lineage of David, and he is the ultimate picture, right? David was a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus who is working judgment. And, and it's like Paul talks about that God has chosen him, this man, by which to judge the entire world. That Jesus Christ is the chosen judge who will judge the entire world. And that is a point of rejoicing for the church. That the church rejoices, right? A, a, a righteous man rejoices to go before a judge. Why? Because he gets to be proven innocent. And we go before the judge with a joy, yes, a fear and a trembling, right? Because we know we're going to give an account for the deeds done in the body, but with a joy knowing that we come clothed in his perfect righteousness. Isn't that an amazing thought? That literally the judge who will judge us is the very one in whom we are clothed. The very one whose righteousness we adorn. And so that's a, a point of giving thanks because we come before the righteous judgment seat of Christ who has clothed us in his righteousness. And so it goes on and begins to talk about uh, praying for Jerusalem or for the peace of Jerusalem. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then it sort of gives this example prayer. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. You get sort of this, this phrase of, may they prosper who love you, peace within your walls, and, and prosperity within your palaces. You know the Lord loves it when there's peace in his body? And we ought to pursue that and pray for that. In Proverbs 6, 6, it says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to running into mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among brethren. Wow. That's an abomination of the Lord. One who sows discord among brethren. Have you ever sown discord among brethren? Sought to tear down that which God is building? Whether that be for your, your mouth, speaking ill of, of the body of Christ, for your actions, sowing discord, sowing gossip, sowing strife, seeking to bring tension in, in a self-seeking way. It's abomination to the Lord. And, 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 and we are to seek peace amongst the peace of God, the people of God. And remember, Jerusalem, it comes from the word for peace, shalom, right? This idea of peace. Now, now you recognize what peace is in a Christian sense. Uh, peace, when we come into the New Testament, is this idea of, of, on one side you have this idea of this absence of strife, okay? This absence of, of turmoil, this absence of strife, both in a relational sense. So we now have peace with God. We've been reconciled to him and we have peace with him. Meaning where there used to be enmity and there used to be the wrath of God against us through the precious blood of Jesus, we have peace in our relationship with God. Right? So we have this, this Godward peace. And then, of course, that works into manward peace in terms of, of a lack of strife in our relationships with the people around us. Now, now that doesn't mean that people aren't going to attack us and people aren't going to come against us. But we can still seek to be at peace, right? And then, of course, you have this idea of, of the absence of enemy faction which is what the Lord did, right? He, he purchased our peace where he dealt a death blow to those forces which would come against us, our, namely our old man, our flesh, and the devil there upon the cross that we might have peace. You know, this, this, one of my 
favorite pictures of peace is this idea of a placid lake. The lake is frozen today, so it's not a very good example. But imagine it were just super placid, right? No wind. You, you recognize that when a lake is so called peaceful, it gives a, a great picture of the heavens, right? It, it gives a perfect, it, you could say, uh, a perfect mirror image of the heavens. Have you ever seen a lake that's choppy? And it totally perverts your view of what's above it, right? Sometimes you can't even see that. And, and, and you recognize that, that when we are walking in the peace of the Lord as a people of God, how will we know we're his disciples? By our love one for another, right? When, when there's a peace in the body of Christ, and, and, and when you have this there, there's a reflection of the nature and the kingdom of God. Now there's this passage in Jeremiah that I want to read to you. It says this in Jeremiah 6. We'll start in verse 6. And it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. Okay, God's mad at Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continually are grief and wounds. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine of the remnant of Israel, as a grape gatherer. Put your hand back into the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even a husband shall be taken of a wife, the aged of him who is full of days, and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. Right? They, they're desiring other things. And from a prophet, even to a priest, everyone deals falsely. Now listen to this. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly. Okay? They have healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Isn't that interesting? They, they hear the people, it's a disaster. There's no peace. There's turmoil and there's rebellion against God and they've turned to idols and they've turned to worship the things of this world and they've made them feel a little bit better about themselves when they've said, peace, peace. And yet God says, that's an abomination to me. I'm, I'm going to take this land and I'm going to give it to others because they're saying peace, peace, and there is no peace. And so when we talk about this idea of peace amongst the people of God, we're not talking about placating sin. We're not talking about, oh, it's okay, we'll just make peace here. But peace according to God's terms, right? Which means that Jesus is Lord and he's working for his body under the glory of God. So we don't, we don't seek unity, we don't seek peace at the expense of, of, of truth. We don't seek peace at the expense of, of Jesus in a pursuit of him. We, we seek peace through the glorifying of Jesus and with the focus upon him and with him being the chief aim. And so what is this real peace? Well, as we get into the rest of the passage, we see, he says, I'm missing this verse. He says, for the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Okay, so he says, for the sake of my brethren and companions, I'm going to say peace within you. But then he goes on and he says, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And this is where we tie into the very beginning of the passage where again, he says, yeah, we're in Jerusalem, but let us go into the house of the Lord. 
And now at the very end, he, he says, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Why does Jerusalem matter? Because this is a place where Jesus dwells, right? Now again, we're not talking about the earthly Jerusalem today. Where is the place that Jesus dwells? It's, 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 it's us, right? And ultimately, he is that chosen place. And when we enter into him, we now become vessels that are his house, and, and he dwells within us. And what is it that brings us peace? It's him. But he himself is the one that brings this peace. He himself is the one that, 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 that provides it or produces it through his indwelling presence among his people. And he says, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. That, 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 that the whole point was this pursuit of the Lord and this place where the Lord dwelt and this, this revelation of God and this knowing of God. Why did Jerusalem matter? Because the dwelling place of God was within, right? Why does the body of Christ matter? Because the dwelling place of God is within. That was the whole point. The whole point was the pursuit of God. So I want to finish with this passage from Exodus chapter 33. And this is before we have the temple built that, that God commanded Moses to build the tabernacle. So literally they take all the spoils of Egypt and, and they, they, they give them together. In fact, there's so much that Moses finally says, stop giving, guys, we've got too much stuff. And they take it and they build out of that this tabernacle for God, isn't it? quite amazing the way that God redeems literally the, the, what the world meant for evil he redeems it into good and he builds this tabernacle and in Exodus 33 we have this description of this tabernacle and it says and Moses took the tabernacle and he pitched it without the camp afar off from the camp and called it the tabernacle of the congregation and it came to pass that when everyone which sought the Lord went out on the tabernacle of the congregation which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out into the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door. Okay, so first it talks about everyone which sought the Lord, what did they do? They went to the tabernacle, right? And we know today that, that, that it's not about the tabernacle, but the place which the Lord has chosen, which is Jesus. But they went out of the camp, they went to the tabernacle, and they, and, and they would stand up, every man at his tent door, and they would watch Moses until he was gone in the tabernacle. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, and the cloudy pillar descended, representing the presence of the Lord, and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped, every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaks unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. This is what I want to describe my life. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, right? This is the Joshua that leads them into the promised land. Departed not out of the tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? So here you have Moses, which, which, by the way, Moses represents the law. He represents the old covenant. Whereas Joshua represents that which Jesus does and represents that which is available to the saints of God. And what do we see in the old covenant? Well, there's these interactions with God, but it's sort of like Moses, right? He goes into the tabernacle, he's in an interaction, and then he goes back out. And then he goes up to the mountain, and he says, Lord, I want to see you. And the Lord says, well, I'm not going to let you see my face. So he walks past him, he hides him in a rock, and then sort of puts his hand over him. And then he gets to see his backside as he walks past him. I don't know exactly how all that works, right? But, but we have these sort of glimpses of God and these interactions with God, but, but it's not like what Joshua had. Joshua didn't depart out of the temple, which represents what we have in the New Covenant, which is this enduring and, and constant communion with the Lord. 
this constant pursuit of the Lord. I, I, I desire for that to be a statement on my face. He didn't depart out of a tabernacle. I'm not talking about some earthly tabernacle, but that his pursuit and his delight, his aim, and, 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 and he, he lived in the presence of the Lord. He lived in the reality of, of the Lord dwelling in him day in and day out. That he pursued the Lord. That was what his life was about. Is that the description of your life? And, 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 and would you pursue that with me? To say, Lord, I, I want to be like Joshua, the son of Nun. To say, I, I don't want to depart out of that place. I don't want to depart out of that place of seeking after you. But I want to remain and I want to abide in this place of seeking after the Lord. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.